hey, I came over here because it was inclusive, but I'm the only blind guy. Mm. Mm. Oh, this lot of people are actually all very similar. Oh. And because they're most similar in their ideologies, and that's what they used to reinforce this new tribe, they're actually almost incapable of flexibility or change. Right. And, and you know, I would, I would kind of put out an idea or, or something and kind of sort of, you know, guys, you wouldn't believe this. I've read this fantastic book and it talks about X or Y and we might be wrong. And because we all love to uh, try and make the world a better place, you're going to be excited about this as well and, and happy, right? Because I've found something that we're doing wrong, which means we can correct it and do things correctly. Uh, but that, that wasn't their reaction. They weren't through it. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. And we also have a special guest, Peter Thompson. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Tim. That's good to hear. So today, I think we were talking uh, last time, just after our last podcast, about how at least Peter and I have had in the last few years a little bit of a switch from uh, kind of progressive leftism to maybe more centrism. Um, and it's a strange phenomenon that I think a lot of people could relate to in the past five years let's say and i'm not sure whether that's just part due to our university education exposure to certain figures um or it's a natural progression of uh aging perhaps i mean we know that people get more conservative as they get older yeah hard to say what do you reckon david probably some combination of all of them <laughs> i think a good thing to go is there's nothing new with this transition so you know we are living hopefully at the tail end of the neoliberal world, seeing most of its projects have failed. Mm. So I'm indicating how left I was when I was a little human. <laughs> I under 25, now I'm a big human, I'm over 45. Not sure about the bit in the middle. <laughs> but if we look back historically, the people who started the neoliberal movement in probably 1945 onwards through to the mid-1950s mm. had all been far left in colleges in America in the 1930s. Some of them had even toyed with the idea of being members of the you know, US Communist Party. Mm. And yet they ended up being the right of the right that became the foundation for everything from Reagan through to Trump. So what we seem to see historically, if we can pull a historical starting point from this, is... If you started reasonably left, it seems there's a good chance you end up reasonably right. If you started a little left, you maybe end up centre or slightly right. But it's one of those things, it's you know, like a pendulum with a clock. How far away from centre it is will determine how far it swings the other way. Mm. So is there is there any kind of antidote to swinging too far to one way? Like if you're already on the pendulum... Um, well, let's... Let's take it back a step and I, I mm. think really get where we all started from and why we all started there because I think we'll find something important in this but I don't want to hint what it is. <laughs> okay, I'm sitting here in my Mikhail Bakunin t-shirt today yes. that Tim and Jade got me. Yay, Mikhail <laughs> Bakunin because I knew we were talking about this stuff today. <laughs> and I think part of what happens when you're young is immaterial of what the world you're in is like. You want it to be better. It's part of youth. Mm. And there's a an idealism there that is not yet experienced enough in the world to not see that 
it might take more than 10 years to achieve. Mm. So when you're in the rush to achieve it in 10 years, and if you have the advantage of time to read and think and study, i.e. you're at university, and that's when we see this kickoff that seems to lead to this big swing, you find the books are, here is this path to utopia, here is this path to utopia. And what you see is that normally utopian writing on the right looks like just a perfected version of what is. And yet part of being young is saying, no, no, I want to be different to my parents' generation and I want a different world. So even if a perfection of what is isn't a bad thing, there's a natural desire to reject it in order to have generational difference. Mm. So with your inexperience, a desire for difference, you're attracted to left-wing utopianism in which are some awesome ideas that could be achieved slowly over time and that's where we get the progressive centre and even the best bits of the right. Mm. But we dive into that at 18 to 20 going, woohoo, all the answers, 10-year plan. (laughs) Hey, this guy Marx and Engels even laid it out as a plan. Rock and roll. Sign me up and hand me the AK. Yeah. (laughs) Now, that's my version of the experience. You two, what was your version? <laughs> Same, different, similar? I, I, I definitely didn't go down a Marx path per se, um, but there was a period of time where I was voting for the, I guess, most one of the most left-wing parties in Australia, which was the Greens. Mm. But you guys are also both end of Cold War. you mm. got to remember that my first elections were pre the end of the Cold War. Mm. I first voted in 1989. Well, it would have been 1990 because my birthday was end of 89, Mm. turned 18, voted for the first time I think in 1990 for something, even if it was just a local council election. I was damn well going to (laughs) vote as an idealistic 18-year-old. Yes. So really, okay, the Berlin Wall was down but communism hadn't fallen over in Russia yet. Mm. So you guys didn't get a chance to do any Marxism at uni, did you? Not formally? (laughs) Not formally. I did in high school, actually. Because it's become part of history. It's a dead thing. Yeah. Okay. Whereas... You know, 1994, I was able to do a whole semester of Marxism with one of the last serious people in the Australian Communist Party and then do a whole semester of anarchism with one of the most serious anarchists (laughs) in Australia. Oh, wow. We don't get any of that now. No. So (laughs) you're taught this stuff as if it's history. No, it's ideas. And ideas (laughs) are like if you carry the last ember of a fire around with you. A little bit of a breath, a little bit of something that will burn, you can make a big fire again. Mm. So part of what the world has done is not just let this stuff sit, but actively turn it into dead history. Stop it being embers. Mm. Now, in my, my feeling is that can lead to two things. Either a generation who don't get a leftist utopian alternative, either are going to get very depressed that they can't see a way forward, or they're going to rediscover Marxism and anarchism and go, why wouldn't they teach us this? They Mm. know it's dangerous. We're going to learn it. But we're going to learn it in an unstructured, rather pointless way that means we don't understand the best bits and the bad bits quickly. Mm. We're going to muddle through and repeat inventing the wheel, which is a waste of your young lives. Mm. What what was your experience, Peter? Oh, um, well, you know, I I think we did get... um, 
a, a bit of Marx. Uh, I remember me, uh, reading Marx in uni, and um, uh, but uh, the figure who particularly grabbed me was uh, was Gramsci. Yeah, Gramsci um, is amazing. Um, and the the theory of cultural hegemony, which yeah. completely gripped me um, for years, yeah. um, until I was able to learn enough to be able to understand that it wasn't the exclusive frame of examination for the world. But uh, that that took me years, and I think before I got to that point was when I was at my lo- my most uh, um, left leaning uh, kind of attitude, let's say. Mm. So, uh, you know, I love Gramsci, and I still, you know, I've made so many masters and honors students go and read Gramsci because it's so useful. This idea of working out how the dominant group co-opt us into behaving. You know? So, if you look potentially dangerous, you're the one that's offered a good job in a BMW. Because it's better to have you inside the tent than outside as a danger. You know, you co-opt the counter-hegemonic intellectual. If audience are interested and we can do a whole podcast on Gramsci and go hardcore Italian Marxist theory, then rolling into constructivism. And, you know, at that point, some of your internal monologues will stop. And I'll just talk faster and faster and get weirder and weirder. (laughs) It'll sort of be fun, but not. Um, But this idea that a dominant group go, psst, why do you want to be a revolutionary? Why don't you become part of what runs the system? You're so smart. Can't you see there's no fighting it? There's only joining it? And that is a devastating idea, why it sticks in most people's head and why it is the part of Marxism that has transcended Marxism and just become a really important part of social sciences. Tim, you had any exposure to Gramsci? Uh, well, uh, Peter and I had some similar classes, I okay. think, and we were exposed to Frankfurt School as well. Yes. Okay, yes. good. Okay, so you got you got both the things that survived, mm. right? And I suppose that was that was my kind of gateway drug, in a mm. in a sense. Um, you talk about it being the the kind of um, the the redeemable parts um, of the of the of the thought, mm. um, but it was I, I suppose we kind of slipped back through that stuff, and we were thinking, well, if this is so brilliant, yes, what's the rest like? The, the, the rest must be brilliant, and yeah. and it fed into that um, that sense that you were talking about before about a, um, a kind of rebelling against your parents' generation, and mm. and I had the sense at least that oh, well, I'm so smart to have divined and discovered this stuff and now I'm going to go further and, and get back the other jewels and gems um, yeah. as well. And that dominated my thinking um, you know, for years until I was able to kind of put a bit more together and think, oh, actually, there's, there's something else going on here. Because it seems when you're young, or at least when I was young, despite knowing sod all, you have the misapprehension that you can know what's good for other people. <laughs> Mm. It's that mm. wonderful thing mm. of it. At 18, you are so tribal. You are so much, if I get it, everyone I know will get it because we will know each other and we will get the same things. That surely if I think this is brilliant, it's fine to say to everyone else, you should do this with me. So there's a wonderful thing in youth of getting swept up and loving your individualism when it's against your parents' generation, but also thinking you can drag your whole generation with you and ignore their individualism. <laughs> And I don't know where that juxtaposition comes from, but it seems to be very, very human and to be in every generation. It wasn't until I think I gained a lot more self-awareness. I went through uh, like a a depressive episode. I think that was when my switch flipped, which is kind of strange, Um, which it gave me more uh, awareness of how people become 
or get to the states that they're in. In the, in the case of our parents, like how it is that they go through their life and then hold these beliefs is actually yeah. a lot more believable than just, oh, they're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about, yeah. you know? Um, you got to get to the point somehow of going beliefs based on experience hold up to interrogation. You mm. don't have to like them, but mm. you can see they actually have solid foundations. Yes. So the more experience you get, whether that's good, bad or indifferent, the more you go, my feet are on rock. <laughs> I like this. Mm. Oh, look, on the rock there's soil. Out of the soil grows things. This is a live environment. I'm in the midst of something alive. Or I can go back over here to the ethereal environment of ideas, which is a great place to play. Mm. But playing there is awesome, but you don't want to live there. Mm. We suddenly start to feel very detached from things. So two famous French theorists, Toulouse and Guattari, they had this idea of the plane of imminence, a plane on which you just play with ideas to see what the ideas will do on the plane of imminence where there are only rules you impose. Now, I can't remember which one of the two died of a heart attack, but the other one was so heartbroken he no longer had anyone to talk to that he put his shotgun under his jaw and blew his head off. They had spent so long just talking to each other and not really connecting to the planet <laughs> that without that person to share the plane of imminence with, the other one realised, well, I'm now just out in space on my own. And that's not actually any fun. So I think part of the power of Marxism, did you guys find this, that when you both found it and then you found a few other people that found it, you were the tribe. Oh, yeah, we were the, we were the cadre. <laughs> yeah. we, 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 you were the <laughs> vanguard of the party. We had divined the essence of the world that everyone else had forgotten, <laughs> you know, the, the purity of the human soul that we'd rediscovered, unlike our foolish parents. Mm. And this mm. thing of saying, we know you can be better, so we're going to help you get there. So it reinforces your sense of ego also with a sense of altruism. And there is the dangerous combination of utopias. It's egotistical to believe they can work or that you got it right and that you can impose it on people, but also it's also highly altruistic because you're doing something that theoretically is going to be good for everyone. So why not try? Mm. So you get to balance the worst of your potential for excess with the best of your potential for social behavior. <laughs> Mm. which is why revolutionaries like Mikhail Bakunin on my t-shirt are so appealing but also would you really want to be related to them mm. <laughs> yeah Bakunin I think they think he was involved in at least eight attempted revolutions mm. Wow. at one point he was chasing a hot heiress and convinced her to come and drop off cigars and cognac to the jail he was in <laughs> and one of his friends had managed to stick a stick of dynamite in there so he could try and bust his way out of jail <laughs> <laughs> Like, cool to hear about now, mm. you know, but <laughs> probably not good. <laughs> I think, you know, in the lead up to this conversation, I have been re-familiarizing myself with The Righteous Mind and Jonathan Haidt and the, yeah. the studies that he and uh, his colleague were working on between the morality or the moral background for... Uh, like liberals and conservatives mm. um, and the, the hierarchy of uh, moral bases. And so for things, so the, the, the left, which I, I, as someone who is atheist looking to rebel, um, yeah, the, the left tend not to uh, prioritize purity, authority, and uh, sanctity, sanctity. Mm, sanctity. Yes. Yep. Um, 
I just I never understood those, and I, and it just they, they never appealed to me. And so no. of course the of the, course you left, left, and that's, that's the problem it. with the three of us sitting here. We all had exactly the same thing. <laughs> Not interested in purity unless it's single malt whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Not interested in sanctity. So moving on from the right, mm. and uh, this is the thing. Depending on your society, it would be just as likely to find a group of young people who are absolutely committed to refining the conservative project that their civilization, their culture has been on for a century. You know, young conservative US colleges full of political clubs of people who just want to refine the awesome American system. Mm. Ugh. Mm. Now for us it's ugh. But for them, that's real and it's worked. Mm. And their families have benefited from multiple generations. So I think there might be something in this too, that if your family have benefited from the status quo, then refinement and the conservative utopia is probably infinitely more appealing. If you've got a turbulent history personally or multi-generationally. So in the case of my family... You know, there was none of my family on either side in Australia until after World War II. Mm. Everyone was escaping chaos and made a life in this amazing new place that was one of the most progressive countries in the world, sowing the seeds for, even in the conventional sense, progressive politics being the absolute acceptable minimum. Mm. And that must be so much an Australian experience, I would imagine. One thing that's reasonably pertinent to this discussion as well, and perhaps we should highlight the fact that, of course, you know, sitting around this table where uh, white males in a Western society, which of course means that the status quo uh, does or has rather privileged us. Um, mm. See, that's one thing I always find interesting to go back to. I should have won the game and ruled the world. Mm. Being an educated white male with my brain. But yeah. being blind? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to theoretically have all the ticks but one and by not having that one tick eyes that work, they stole a heap of my other ticks for mm. I get to rule the world. Mm. So again, I think that was another reason why I probably headed toward leftist utopianism. It's like, right, who's inclusive? These weirdos <laughs> over here. Well, they're not so weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're inclusive. So that's awesome because I need to be included. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that was somewhat my approach as well. I was always uh, kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. And that was part of the appeal of, of leftism to me, especially in my in my kind of um, younger adult years, was the idea of this kind of inclusive tribe uh, that accepted all comers. Um, and I, I think my political swing backwards towards the center, let's say, uh, was partially in noticing the same type of tribalism in the left uh, that I had gone to the left to avoid and realized that it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a necessarily the lack of uh, of internal tribes but but uh, just different types of internal tribes and I think that was part of my alienation with left-wing politics eventually was noticing this groupish behavior and this excluding behavior in the left uh, that I hadn't seen previously I'm so glad you said that because that was my observation too is <laughs> hey I came over here because it was inclusive but I'm the only blind guy mm. oh this lot of people are actually all very similar oh. and because they're most similar in their ideologies and that's what they used to reinforce this new tribe they're actually almost incapable of flexibility or change right and and you know I would I would kind of put out an idea or or something and kind of said you know 
guys, you wouldn't believe this. I've read this fantastic book and it talks about X or Y and we might be wrong. And because we all love to uh, try and make the world a better place, you're going to be excited about this as well and, and happy, right? Because I've found something that we're doing wrong, which means we can correct it and do things correctly. Uh, but that, that wasn't their reaction. They weren't thrilled. I had a, a different experience to that, but it adds to that in that mm-hmm. the semester of Marxism, all of us learned it and it was very interesting. But then we got to the semester on anarchism. And being that, you know, George had gone from being a communist to an anarchist, George Vassilakopoulos, who was teaching us, George, if you're still lecturing somewhere in Melbourne, listen to the podcast and send me a message. <laughs> you are an awesome human being. It's all your fault. I now teach people. <laughs> it's all your fault in a good way. But George would have us all in his office for tutes because the subject was so small. I think the year I did anarchism, there were 30 of us. So there were two tutes of 15. So we all fit in George's office, <laughs> literally piled in like sardines. Wow. And he would make everyone Greek coffee and there was a massive lolly jar. <laughs> and the tute was straight after the lecture. So we would go to the lecture, I think, from memory at 11. The tute was at 12. And at about 1.30, so we've already gone over a half hour, he'd start unpacking his lunch and then just start eating in front of us because we'd got into a debate and we're just going wild. <laughs> and he would periodically add references or calm people down or point out something we'd all missed as a group. But the incredible thing of doing anarchism was this lesson that, ah, oh, this is why the anarchists lost uh, the leftist utopian battle because the Marxists did tribe up and they tribed up ruthlessly. The anarchists, one of the core things that made them 19th century European anarchists was not becoming a tribe. They held on to their autonomy desperately, which made them politically ineffective. And by the end of the semester, I think most of my tute, who were some of the nicest, smartest people I've met in my whole life, had all had the same realisation. This is freaking awesome, but it can't be used as a platform to push forward change on a large scale. It can inform us as we go into the normal world to not be bent too far out of shape by the normal world, but that's all we can do with this. So we were both elated to have got our autonomy in a way we could keep and disappointed that we couldn't use it to change the world. And in that combination, that's for me where the leftist utopian light switch got flicked out. When I realised I can carry this as part of what I was you know, learning by that point was actually going to be you know, a virtue ethics perspective on the world. You know, a Nietzschean virtue ethic informed by Stoicism and existentialism. That was going to be what made David if I had to define it. <laughs> but that David couldn't shape the world in his image. David could only be an exemplar like the best of the anarchists had been exemplars. And that you then had to fall back into the normal world and all its tribes and go, humph. Now, the lesson I've learned from this is the tribes can't be stopped by a tribe of anarchists or a tribe of Stoics. So you've got to take your anarchism and your stoicism and go join whatever tribe will have you and gradually show them an example and see if it rubs off. Is that um, necessarily something that we want to destroy? No, it's so natural to humans. Mm. But you realise you've got to work with the tribes because you can't work against them. You work against the tribe, you'll get squashed like a bug. (laughs) And the tribe won't feel bad about doing it because one of the deepest, oldest things in our monkey brains that eventually got you know a neocortex on top is... Outside the group, you will die. Mm. 
you will be hunted, you will not be able to get food, you will not be able to sleep safely, you will die. Mm. And that is so deep in our mammalian brain. You know, we'll get onto this in other podcasts later, the importance of all these things. But for today, when you recognize that this leftist tribe can't deliver, but you don't want to surrender the best of what you learned, that's when, in my opinion, the bigger period of change happens. Because changing to the left is kind of easy. Mm. You're walking in pre-existing footprints in the snow. You're following a path in the sand. You know, you know someone did it before you. But when you get, well, it's almost like getting grenaded back mm. into individualism. Yeah. It's like, oh, crap. Where's my tribe? Mm. And was your experience of, of getting grenaded back into individualism similar, Peter? That was like, holy shit, no more tribe? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was wild. Um, it kind of corresponded with a lot of personal changes in my life mm. that just wiped me out completely. Um, for a couple of years, actually, until I could find my footing again. Uh, Grenaded out of my tribe is actually a pretty pretty accurate representation. Um, it was it was definitely difficult. Yeah. Uh, what about what about you, Tim? Is what was your experience mm, of coming of, out the other end? Yeah. Grenaded, perhaps. Maybe in a less strict sense, I would say. You know, okay. I've maintained quite a few of my relationships, but also I was always a lot more politically inclined than most of the people that I okay, hung so you were out more with. the tribe leader. So when you changed yeah. direction, the tribe really didn't mind. They just heard about less politics and ate more pizza, so they were happy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm no longer the tribe leader, though. Yeah. So um, is maybe the best way. To, it sounds, yeah. sounds slightly strange, but, yeah, is, is an accurate description of these changes and it often feels like i'm still going against you know the grain, the grain. Yeah. yeah why are the three of us happily sitting here talking about this because we've got two other people to happily sit and talk about this <laughs> with which is an itty bitty you know both therapy group group and tribe yeah we've yeah you know, we've rediscovered the tribe of individuals mm. who get the same things yeah i think you know for as much as maybe the left or society is is really starting to privilege mental health and being open it's not we know there's a problem, but yeah. we haven't got anywhere yet near a solution. Yeah. Because if we're three people who all looked for this utopian path to help ourselves and others, because it was a combination of ego and altruism, mm. that, I think, is our species' norm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we're special in that sense. No, no, no. no. <laughs> we might be special in other senses, but in that sense, we're the run-of-the-mill, educated people who had time and opportunity to think maybe we could make it better and picked actually what you realize seems amazing at the time but is the most predictable path for young educated people who have the freedom to try mm-hmm. I, th- I think we might have talked about this uh, on the street after one of the recordings um, but uh, you know I was talking about the experience of listening to Jordan Peterson say and um, him railing against postmodern neo-marxists and me thinking several years ago but wait I'm a postmodern well, neo-marxist <laughs> I've come to it all by myself you know this yeah. is my genius it's me it's I that have scribed the ancient texts and divined yeah. all of this um, <laughs> But um, but but weirdly enough, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this, um, David. Is what exactly is there some kind of mass movement happening right now from the left 
to let's say center left or, or more towards the center or is it or is that just a a reflection of the inexorable drift um, of people generally towards the uh, towards the center over time is, is there anything special going on at the moment I think there might be because worldwide you know the left's big attempts the Soviet Union China being genuinely communist um, now Venezuela is pretty much on its knees Cuba's changing direction carefully and slowly the reality is the attempt at communism has failed yeah, dictating to people you will do this and we will tell you and we will skim the cream off the top was well, just another form of authoritarianism somewhere they lost the altruism but it seems to me a lot of Europe after World War II tried the centre where you don't have strong beliefs on anything you have the moderated modulated version of everything which is good when things are good so it worked when economically things are good well, I want you all to imagine that left and right aren't on a linear spectrum we're on a circle. Mm. So the centre of the circle is a dot and that's the true centre. You can be a bit out any direction from that and you're just that direction further out. So I think actually a lot of the centre left and centre right are the same distance from the centre. Mm. A lot of the medium left and medium right are a similar distance. And I think what I wonder what's happening now and why mainstream politics is so inane is because we all know the centre doesn't work. It can't take hard decisions. We want something better, but traditionally you either had to be left or right. Well, that's not working either. Those things are too dogmatic. But what happens if you have a socially progressive policy that we would have traditionally said is on the left and we have an equidistance from centre security policy that says we have to be safe? I think that's where we might be heading, that we're actually creating a donut. <laughs> Where people are pulling things from, like, let's say, so an idea that might be traditionally right or and then yes. another idea that's traditionally left and people can hold those two same thoughts at the same time. Yes. It's not it's not impossible. Our to... world has become so paradoxical <laughs> mm. that I think anyone who preaches to us cohesive ideology, now we immediately, well, by we I mean people like us who've gone, hang on, that book that made perfect sense to change the world failed mm. this person is preaching to me a speech that says they've got the model for perfectly changing the world no eh, don't trust mm -hmm. so the world is paradoxical we've come to not trust cohesive ideology we don't have a party left who has cohesive ideology but what we haven't had yet is the acceptance of build a platform out of what you believe acknowledge and accept the paradoxes and then pitch that platform to your audience because right. i certainly know where i am now i'm a donut <laughs> <laughs> on so many social things i am you know highly left and progressive i would legalize all drugs tomorrow and manage them properly so criminals can't make money you know i would do anything tomorrow so people can have the gender identity they want and that's on the paperwork and their life is easier and that there's no problem to partner up with whoever they want and you know have proper rights as a partner you know, all this kind of stuff let's just get it done that is like duh happy people living safe lives are going to contribute better and cost society less but at the same point on the other side i'm going to make sure we have a highly competent you know security sector of policing intelligence 
and military, not because I want to use it on our own society, but our world is turbulent and dangerous. And if you are not prepared, the world will slap you like a bug. And I have no problems in my head holding those two things at the same time. I have no problem holding the idea that I want more proper entrepreneurship in Australia because we have nowhere near enough. But at the same token, power companies, seeing every Australian needs power, probably shouldn't be run by companies because they do a shit job and charge too much <laughs> and won't invest in rebuilding infrastructure. So yeah, in economic terms, I'd apply Lindsay Tanner's jelly bean test, which is you want to make jelly beans, all you need is a pot, glucose and a mould. So anyone can get into the jelly bean business. But to warm up the glucose, you need a stove that works. Everyone needs a stove that works. So the gas or electricity that run the stove should be done by the state at the most economical cost possible right. with the best infrastructure long-term to empower a population to be free and make choices on things they can do. Now, the jelly bean test was in Lindsay Tanner's first book, which no one seems to remember, even though it is the best guide for building a mixed economy anyone has ever written. And that's high praise, I'm sure, yeah. Well, of the ones I've read, I've yeah. only read 10 or 12, but it's the best because you learn how to build a mixed economy in 12 pages. <laughs> Get over it. It's not that hard. <laughs> and you see why it went wrong in the 1970s because they'd gone, the state can solve too many things and the state's not holding its own behaviours to account. That's not that there was anything wrong with mixed economy. It's that by the 1970s, the mixed economies that educated millions of people across Western Europe, the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, gave them good health care, gave them a chance to jump up at least one economic bracket in a generation, had got sloppy and lazy and inefficient. Mm. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with a mixed economy. It means you have to run them properly, know what to step back on, know when to step in. So I realised that economically, I hold a paradox that both sides hate. <laughs> that in terms of social progressiveness, and at the same point, not wanting an authoritarian state, but wanting a prepared security sector, means my donut views make no sense to 90% of Australians. I don't care. Because <laughs> without the paradoxes, how can you have good policy? Mm. Or at least that's where I've ended up. I think... Peter and I have been. Well, I, I don't want to speak for you, Peter, but maybe maybe you share the same feelings. In that I've been exposed to too much um, of me. No, <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> um, uh, I think we've heard like the narrative from several figures that universities are effectively dominated by kind of left progressive thinking. We don't hear any good conservative thought at university anymore. And there is there is that swing of the pendulum. There's this backlash culturally. People are hungry for good conservative ideas. Mm. And it's coming out in in the figures like, you know, Jordan Peterson or Dave Rubin or even Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos or ben whoever Shapiro. it is. Yeah. Ben Shapiro. Yeah, yeah, he's a good one. And then they get all these, you know, fancy labels like alt-right and neo-lib and neocon when they're probably not even those things anyway uh, not necessarily anyway and it's it all it highlights is perhaps how 
biased the the media is or even people who would normally be indifferent are now swayed to the left in so insofar as that anything that is slightly conservative still feels very against the grain but that's i think because the neoliberal project has caused so much pain mm. you know peter sorry for jumping in like you, you know you, you respond or add but yeah i think it's really important to understand for people who don't know anything but neoliberal life you know, John Howard gained power in 1996 in Australia. There's a whole generation of university students who know nothing but the neoliberal mm. agenda. That is all they've lived through. You know, whereas I grew up under essentially the leftist agenda of Hawk, Hawk and Keating. Mm. So what you grow up in can have a radical impact. Uh, just one other thing to add what you're thinking, Tim, and then Peter can respond to both of us is I don't just think it's a hunger for ideas. I think it's a hunger for outcomes. Mm -hmm. Because the left delivered in the West profoundly well, 1960s, 1970s, through the 80s in Australia, even into the 90s in some countries. Mm. And delivering so well was remarkable. And then the right delivered for a while simply because times were good in the global economy. Mm. So... If things are going okay, why question it? But post-GFC, environmental crisis, who's delivering? We don't just want ideas anymore. We want ideas linked to outcomes. So a university full of ideas is awesome, but show us the link from the idea to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, someone in a podcast who's been successful can at least say, well, my idea succeeded for me. That's more than you can say about a university professor who's been promoted for the ideas but can't show the outcome. Mm. which I think is a real problem now because it means less well-thought-out ideas become popular because the person who created them can also say, I've been a success with my own ideas. But do you not think, okay, do you think that there is a cultural problem on the campus where, I can't remember what the name of the project was, but there were those people who uh, submitted articles to um, a scientific journal or uh, uh, social sciences journal which was effectively Mein Kampf but they replaced Nazism with like feminism they effectively just replaced some of the words but it was effectively the same radical um, kind of language as Mein Kampf and then it got published like and a whole bunch of these um, papers which were written on kind of leftist culture as opposed to well like mm. as opposed to thought out kind of let's say social scientific discoveries were accepted based on their ideology as opposed to whether that was actually important or progressive to publish yeah but we were talking about before the importance of tribe Mm. in the political left totally and we all looked for tribe yes university is not you know as overtly tribal Mm. but most disciplines have a few tribes within them or are very much one tribe, mm. one perspective, mm. or two in combat. Mm. So, you know, the politics department at Adelaide University between the mid-90s and about 2006 seven mm. had two very strong tribes that took great pleasure in stabbing each other. Mm. Not to kill, but to go, my point. It was like the perfect fencing match. There was a little bit of blood, a lot of intellectual development, but it was through combativeness, you know, until the thinking was done and then collegiality over a beer. My feeling is the competitiveness is now for keeps and hidden under the language of political correctness. 
and where's the room for collegiality in a neoliberal university? Yeah. As I've said a few times in the podcast, there's a reason I'm a part-time academic, but I hope a full-time public intellectual. Because mm. the minute I sink into the world of fighting over points in an academic fencing match, I hope someone will, you know, drag me outside and pour a bucket of water over my head. <laughs> mm. So, yes, if, if you are in a world that has a bag of money and a bag of time and no one's holding it to account, of course you'll end up in a strange space. And that's the problem. Some countries, academics are very much public intellectuals. In Australia, that is the odd thing. And I think public intellectuals is exactly what we need. People who test every idea in their own life or by talking to a group of non-students. You know, they talk outside of academic conferences, outside of the lecture hall and go, well, what do people think who chose to turn up to my lecture but are going to go back tomorrow mm. and not have time to read a book? What value do you see in my month of thinking? Because their opinions matter. Mm. And I think universities have largely forgotten that. And we now have a vice chancellor at Adelaide University who really wants to connect to the you know the uni to the community, and has made you know quite a few statements about you know we really need to aim to be public intellectuals and lead and participate in public debate. I'm like yes, exactly what a university should be to reconnect the power of thought and time and research mm. to the need for social progress. Well, isn't it kind of strange that we're doing this independently? Like, you know, in some respect that... that we're on the outside looking in. Yeah, we we are, you know, all here stakeholders of the university. We're in some way in, in, in involved. And yet this project, I guess, as Blind Insights, is completely separate, effectively commercial. <laughs> um, yeah, but this is also that recognition. Once you can't be in the utopian tribe... Do you really ever believe you want to be a fully-fledged member of any tribe? Or has it taught you to be wary of drinking the Kool-Aid? Now, I didn't become a full-time academic because I refused to drink the Kool-Aid <laughs> and do the things that would have got me there. I don't drink the Kool-Aid to be a full-time consultant who will do work for people just to get paid. I'm that weird dude who will say to a client, I'm not sure I can help. If I think I can, I'll be in touch. But my suggestion is, I think you should talk to this person. They know more than me. And I've had senior managers, senior bureaucrats go, really? Well, yeah, I can't help. Mm -hmm. Now, that weirds them out. Because they're used to being sold to. <laughs> yeah, they're used to being sold to. Everything's a selling game. Okay, I've learned to schmooze at a very low level, so I earn some money. Mm. But, oh, it's icky. I need a shower after. So, Peter... Personally, I think we kind of align mm. in, in, on several issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you find yourself wary of drinking any other kind of Kool-Aid? <sighs> yeah, well, that's the, the kind of um, the concern that I've had recently. I've, you know, I've been consuming a huge amount of conservative material uh, from uh, Ben Shapiro, arguably mm. Jordan Peterson, um, you know, uh, Thomas Sowell. Um, Thomas Sowell is awesome. Yeah. He's frightening because you nearly get sucked in. Right, but exactly, and and so yes. I'm in this I'm in this stage right now where where I've had the concern: Am I a conservative now? Because I don't I don't I don't imbibe any liberal media anymore. It annoys mm. me because it's just overt tribalism, and it just frustrates me. And so I've been thinking: Have I just become 
a full-blown conservative. I'll get home, I'll listen to the Ben Shapiro show, mm. uh, you know, I'll, I'll read Thomas Sowell, yeah. and, I, I, and I'm thinking, have I changed? Am I conservative? But I, I think upon reflecting on it, um, I seem to be scanning those pieces of work and that thought and that history of thought to try and find what gems are in it that work for me in terms of my my worldview and my experiences. And I've honed down on a couple of real humdingers. So um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm wary of drinking the Kool-Aid. I think it's, it is a concern of mine. Um, but I have to just let myself explore, I think, and have, have faith in myself and mm. the, the process. Being older than you guys, can I make a suggestion as to what you might be doing? Sure. If it's anything similar to what I did. Sure. And that is what you're actually looking for is some solid ground that though it doesn't change the world, it's solid ground from which you can bring about change. Mm. And that's to me what Thomas Sal is all about. Mm. Here's a guy who can see the best in what was and wants to refine it. And I don't necessarily always agree on how he wants to refine it, but I can see a lot of value in a lot of the solid ground he points out. If we stand on that, we're not going to sink while we're doing heavy work. If we stand on that, we can at least offer people an idea grounded in reliable outcomes, not in utopianism. We can add a new idea to an old success. And that to me is part of why, you know, I hate this description of being a donut, but part of being a donut is accepting that there's good old stuff that will give you a reliable kickoff point. So you can add to the new with a greater chance of success because you've got something substantial already in your corner under your feet. My new naive concept, I think, and I can't tell if this is just as naive as I used to be politically, is that I've been thinking about this over the past couple of weeks and especially reading, um, rereading uh, Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, mm. um, which, which I'm sure we can all heartily recommend. Absolutely. Is that the problems that are facing, uh, let's say the world, but let's say this, this country, um, uh, require a movement of people in a bipartisan fashion. The, the, the problems that we have are so large and so quickly evolving that the only way I can see out of it is that we learn to be able to contextually co uh, cooperate with each other outside of our tribal groups. And and what attracts me to, to writers, and I'm going to mispronounce the name again, but but uh, like Saul, is the is this footing that you were yes. talking about, this this yeah. solid ground with we which... We all share. Which, exactly, and and my hope is that if if enough people gain a common understanding or a tiny bit of a foothold, then that will give us the political, the ability for our, uh, for our politics, our national politics, to swing enough from left to right or from whichever party is delivering the, uh, the deliverables to be able to actually tackle some of these problems that we're facing, like global climate change, mass migration, uh, automation, and, and all of these sorts of huge unprecedented issues. Mm. Liberal democracy provides common ground if you want to see it. And if you live in a liberal democracy, you've benefited from that common ground, whether you want to admit it or not. Now, a proportion of the right would say, oh, no, I did it myself. Mm -hmm. A proportion of the left would say, but it's not enough. But it's a hell of a lot better than most of human history. Mm -hmm. Liberal democracy provides foundation. And part of experience is something that reliably means tomorrow you've got a good thing to step off from 
and to step back onto. You know, once you pass that utopian youth thing and you go, okay, I still want it to be better, but better can't come out of the void. Better can't happen in free fall. You know, better has to grow in something or stand on something. That, that's, I think, the biggest transformation. So, in a sense, maybe, you know, Peter, you've just, in a sense, put something in the center of the donut. Maybe mm-hmm. now we've got a Berliner. <laughs> <laughs> so we could have the Berliner school of political reform. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. I had to have a bakery joke. I don't know why. <laughs> I felt the need, the need for icing. I guess, you know, there are probably, I'm, oh, well, I'm, I'm assuming there are going to be listeners who find themselves frustrated with this tension between and it's it's i definitely would describe it as or prescribe it as a um societal problem where you know for instance if you have any awareness of a gentleman by the name of tim pool who says uh has a lot of data and examples of conservatives being um banned uh, on several platforms mainly twitter um where left-wing ideology that is similarly let's say extreme or left-wing um uh action or yeah which is similarly kind of uh, could be similarly labeled is is not banned um there is a tension where there is oh sorry there is a problem where the 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 pendulum when the pendulum swings the other way um it's really easy to get angry feel silenced feel um excluded i guess um and though we've got perhaps a strategy to move forward with the you know your solid foothold uh what can we offer listeners who are frustrated by um their maybe silencing or their or feelings of being silenced or um, their anger toward, let's say, the, the media bias. Okay, I'm going to put something really extreme in and not to be controversial, but actually because <laughs> it popped into my head as a really important idea. Mm-hmm. If we look after World War II, Franz Fanon, mm-hmm. you know, a black African, fought to liberate France, got a major medal from one of the most racist French white generals at the end of the war went back to Africa and then realised the only way we're going to beat you know, um, France, beat colonisation, is violence. Cathartic violence. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing we've learnt, if we've learnt anything, is there's no such thing as cathartic violence. If you unleash the genie of violence, you unleash the genie of violence every time you can't get what you want. Mm-hmm. And it may give you a sense of re-empowerment but then it turns you into a person who causes trauma. So if we've learnt anything other than the absolute loopies at the absolute extreme of politics, they're the only ones who anymore think violence is a solution. Is that if you are frustrated, think about it. Do you want to go down the path of violence? I'm hoping 99.999% of you will say no. Mm. In that case, you have to turn inward into this circle we're talking about and find somewhere to stand and something to do and start behaving in the way that you think the world should be mm-hmm. and see if people come and stand with you and have a chat. Mm-hmm. There is no single magical person to find who will lead you. 
you need to take some responsibility first Mm. so that if you become a follower to someone more powerful, more informed, more ideologically astute, more politically astute, you don't become a sheep. Mm. There's a wonderful book by uh, Ira Chalif uh, called Followership, how the quality of followers can improve the quality of leaders. And if you're out there and frustrated, fine, you may not be able to be the leader. Hold leaders to account by knowing what you want to be, who you want to be, where you want to live, and help improve whatever political entity you can find that's achieving anything worthwhile. Because you can't do it on your own. And you can't do it from the void. Hmm. And violence hasn't worked. So guess what? This is limiting our options to take personal responsibility, to join something, but don't follow blindly follow as an informed follower who if it's not right says at the conference or meeting no Mm. i don't agree and here's why and if none of you have a conscience problem with this that's pretty weird (laughs) yeah regain the opposite of what most politics seems to be people who agree be the person who disagrees but disagrees in a rational way that says Have you thought about this? And if you haven't, it's not going to change my mind because I already know I'm only here in this tribe to get a better outcome. Mm. I know because of my views, I'm not going to get to fit. I haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid. But I still give you an extra vote as long as you're not a moron. (laughs) 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 I mean, that that, that can be a pretty tiring process. Oh, yeah, exhausting. Mm. No doubt. But that's that's my, my only... Suggestion seeing cathartic violence is a nice idea for getting over colonialism that then made violence normal (laughs) across all of Africa. Mm. Now when it's bad, let's have a coup. Let's kill the richies. Let's Mm. kill the smart people. Mm. Look at Pol Pot Pot in Cambodia killing 20% of his own population, killing everyone with education so that he could reshape society more quickly. Cathartic violence doesn't work. So if you can't look further out on the fringe, you have to look in. And if you look in, the only path is at least, you know, informed followership, quality followership. Band together with 20 people and go to a a political party meeting and say, the 20 of us are going to join your branch. Branch stack it. You may never want to be the candidate, but you might be able to stop an arsehole being the candidate. (laughs) And I mean that in all parties, not anyone in particular. All right. Any uh, any final comments on the pendulum swing? Let's say. Let's cut the rope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's take the pendulum out, shine it up, and just sit it in the middle and say, "Right, here's a point. Where do you stand around it? Mm. Let's stop have it swinging through the air and smashing people in the head and excluding people." The more the more I go through life, the more I notice that that violence isn't an answer and aggression isn't an answer especially politically, uh, because I notice in myself that when I'm attacked unfairly or if Mm. I'm derided or if my tribe is under attack, even my loosely affiliated tribe of of the left, let's say, when my group is under attack, it only galvanizes my identity with the group. It suppresses my uh, desire to think individually and Mm. challenge my own group. Um, and you make people worse by threatening them. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I've tried to do personally to help 
uh, the situation is to try and, and I have to try hard, but I try not to antagonize people in such a way that their own political beliefs are galvanized rather than, let's say, expanded or softened or, or, mm. or that, or that um, uh, so that they are amenable to my line of argumentation. Yeah, make it fencing. Mm. Tiny drop of blood's fine, mm. <laughs> but no kill shots. <laughs> and what about you, Tim? Well, I'm only recently with inspiration from people such as yourself, Peter, starting to display my political self, perform my political mask, as uh, Irving Goffman would say, you know. So I, I used to do that a lot in high school and never really made friends uh, friends with it. And so then I, that that was also a part of falling into my left tribe was that it was easier to take a backseat. Mm. Um, but yeah starting to kind of I don't know espouse my views in in, in a way that I hope is friendly mm. and approachable mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Oh, well even if you lose all your other friends you've still got us yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well maybe that's all I need all right. <laughs> they say you know what is it if you have five five good friends that you're you're, in you're wealthy done, you've done very well yeah. yeah that's it well plus we have all the listeners as well that's true so really the tribe is growing <laughs> now tribe you can now buy t-shirts yeah awesome yeah very true so you can head to the ozcastnetwork.com uh, and find under the uh, show page or the or the, the Shopify collection that there's uh, plenty of shirts to buy so. and pins and yeah. coffee cups yeah <laughs> yeah exactly great for the staff room alright well thank you both for, for coming on thank you Peter thank you And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. You didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music, did you? I'm here today to say we now have merchandise. You can have a Blind Insights t-shirt. You can have a Blind Insights pin. You can have a Blind Insights hoodie. You can have a Blind Insights coffee cup. All you need to do is go to Oscast A-U-S-C-A-S-T dash network dot myshopify.com and click on Bind Insights and you can see all our products. Thank you very much to the Oscast Network for their support and making this happen. <laughs>